Pastor and author John Piper once said, the infinitely self-sufficient God came into the world not to be assisted, but to be enjoyed. The truth is, God is God regardless of what we ever do or don't do. God is exactly who he is with or without us. So uh, you understand that God doesn't actually need us. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our affirmation or attention. He doesn't need our affection, our praise, our worship, or our devotion. Now listen, he wants all of that, but not because he needs all of that. He doesn't need any of that. The fact is God needs nothing because he already is in and of himself perfectly complete. There's no lack in him. There's nothing uh, missing, nothing partial, nothing yet to be fulfilled in God. He already is and always has been perfectly complete, needing nothing. Yet we often live our lives as if God somehow needs our help being God. And the, the problem with that is, first of all, there's nothing you can ever do in your entire lifetime that is ever going to help God be more God than he already is. And secondly, when you live your life believing that God is, is somehow relying on you to help him be the kind of God this world needs, then you're elevating yourself, first of all, to an impossible standard that you cannot live up to and were never intended to live up to, a standard that actually fosters a potentially costly is and what he came to do in your life and in this world because you're taking on a role that is not yours to fill. And at the same time, you're devaluing who God actually is, okay? God isn't like us. God isn't broken or needy or insufficient or lacking in any way. There's nothing incomplete about God. And so the reason he invites us in to be a part of what he is accomplishing in this world is for our sake, not his. Right? He invites us into his story, not so that he can become who he needs to be. It is for us to become who we need to be. And yet, because we are lacking in certain areas of our lives, whether we realize it or not, listen, we often project our own weaknesses onto God. Okay, there's a natural tendency for most of us to project our own human character traits onto God. The fact is we do it all the time. If you, if you lean toward an authoritarian perspective when it comes to your own life, toward your work, family, culture, church, whatever it is, then you will tend to view God in your life as an authoritarian. If you tend to have a more socially or morally liberal viewpoint toward a culture or humanity in general, then you will tend to view God as being more socially or morally liberal than other people do. People who carry anger around inside themselves all the time, if you ask them to describe God, whether they realize it or not, they will often describe to you a God who is angry, okay? People who feel helpless, hopeless by definition, whether they mean to or not, they often view God as somehow unable to help them, which is exactly why they feel hopeless, right? We can go on and on here. The fact of the matter is people who believe in God 
tend to project their own human character traits onto God, right? When's the last time you heard a highly liberal uh, person describe God as being highly conservative? We don't do that, or vice versa. How often do you hear socially or morally conservative people describing God as being socially or morally liberal, right? Angry people uh, typically don't describe God as being compassionate, benevolent, forgiving, and accepting. Why? Because they're angry, and so they think God must be angry too. We tend to project our own human character traits onto God, and it skews our perspective of Him and what He actually came to do. And ultimately, uh, listen, if we're not careful, we can totally lose sight of the true essence of who God is, because when we project our own human nature onto Him, what we're doing is following something that is actually inferior to God, something far less than God. To be blunt, we're following a version of ourselves. And the danger in doing that is not only our own misunderstanding, of course, of who God is and what He came to do, but it's also in the fact that we're no longer pointing other people to God. We're pointing other people back to ourselves, whether we mean to or not. And nowhere, listen, Nowhere is the danger of that more pronounced than in uncertain times because when human beings are subjected to considerable amounts of pressure, whatever is inside of them is what comes out. If you, if you squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out, right? And if you squeeze a human being with enough pressure, whatever is inside of them is what comes out. And so if a person struggles with trusting God to the point they're full of fear, and you apply enough pressure to that person, then I'm telling you what comes out is fear. If it's hopelessness, then hopelessness comes out. If it's anger, then anger comes out. And yet for those who truly see Jesus Christ as faithful, even when we're not, and all sufficient, even though we're not, and the embodiment of perfect love, even if we're not, then when you apply pressure to that person, what comes out of them is faith, Hope and love, even in the middle of the most uncertain times, because that is what is inside of them. The love of Christ, the hope of Christ, and faith in Christ, no matter how uncertain times may be. And of course, I don't have to tell you that we're living in uncertain times right now. In fact, if you don't like what the experts are saying about the virus and the effects of the virus, no problem, because you can find any number of experts right now saying any number of contradictory things about it on any given day. Because at the end of the day, no one knows for certain the final outcomes of this virus or the effects it will ultimately have on the health of our people or our economy or our nation or the rest of the world, which creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And we don't like uncertainty or the pressure that comes with it. And yet one thing remains true. In times of uncertainty, if you ever wonder what is truly inside of someone, all you have to do is look at what's coming out of them. If they're a professing Christian, what comes out of them actually speaks volumes about how they actually view God, which has been true, by the way, since the dawn of humankind. As I say, often, although human culture constantly changes, Listen, human nature never changes. It's why these ancient stories that we study together are as relevant today as they were then, because since the beginning of time, people have projected their own flawed human nature onto God, as we'll see in our story today, 
as we continue our sermon series working our way through 1 Samuel, where the people of God had a skewed perspective of the person of God. They'd lost their perspective of the true essence of who he was and what he'd come to do. And as the times became increasingly uncertain, those skewed perspectives of God not only affected them, but listen, they affected everyone around them in catastrophic ways as what was truly inside of them started to come out. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last week then and see what we can learn about the certainty of God even in the most uncertain times. We'll begin with chapter 5, which is a short chapter, so we're going to read through the entire bit there to begin. Chapter 5, starting at verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. I love how the pagan god can't even stand up on his own. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of this city went up to heaven. In the last chapter, the Philistines attacked the Israelites, and two separate battles ensued, resulting in the loss of about 34,000 Israelite soldiers and the Ark of the Covenant into the hands of the Philistines who take the Ark to Ashdod, one of the five major city-states of the Philistines. It was about 19 miles uh, south of Ebenezer where the Israelites had encamped against the Philistines and carried the Ark into battle. And in ancient warfare, when a nation's God was captured, the image of that God was typically placed in the temple of the conquering deity, which symbolized the defeat of uh, that God's inferiority before the conquering God. So in this case, the Ark of the Covenant was taken into the temple of Dagon, who was the patron deity of the middle uh, Euphrates region. It's described in inscriptions throughout Mesopotamia, uh, by the way, dating all the way back to the third millennium BC, a pagan god 
who was considered to be the father of Baal. And based on numerous ancient writings, including those of the fourth century historian Jerome, several references also in the Talmud, the central uh, rabbinical text of Judaism, most, most scholars believe that the image of Dagon was that of a half fish, half man. And so the Philistines set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. That's the full name of the Ark of the Covenant. They set it up next to this half-fish, half-man, pagan god, Dagon, as a trophy for their god, who in the minds of the Philistines had defeated the god of the Israelites in battle. Yet the next morning, when the Philistine priests go to the temple of Dagon, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place again, right? They prop him back up. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. It is profoundly significant and actually kind of humorous that the image of this false god was found face down before the Ark of the Covenant because that was the posture of worship and subservience before a god in ancient times. So the Philistine god who they thought had defeated Yahweh was now bowing down, paying homage in worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with his head and hands severed in a permanent sign of impotence before the one true God. It was such an incredible display of power, the Philistine priests never again set foot on the threshold of that temple. Yet for the Philistines, well, it gets even worse. As a terrifying plague strikes the people of Ashdod, who immediately recognize the one responsible for their plight. The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, they said, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God, as this plague rapidly spreads throughout the population as they start treating the ark like a hot potato, passing it from one Philistine city to the next. And interestingly, as historians have studied numerous ancient writings that reference this plague, such as uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, who describes one of the symptoms of severe dysentery, but there are others that give us a lot more information about the types of tumors they were experiencing, along with uh, a vast number of archaeological discoveries from the Philistine city of Ashdod, which are graphic, so I'm not going to describe them here, but it is widely held that this disease was a form of the bubonic plague that has afflicted various populations worldwide for centuries. For instance, uh, whereas the next chapter talks about mice being a part of the plague in the, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says, and I'm quoting, and rats appeared in their land and death and destruction were throughout the city. And of course, it's well documented that rats carry bubonic plague, which causes painful swellings of the lymph nodes in parts of the body that match up with the archeological findings from Ashdod. And again, we won't discuss all of that here, other than to say that Dagon was also known as the god of fertility, which makes this particular plague all the more appropriate as a statement of Dagon's total defeat. And we know the bubonic plague, by the way, has a 50% mortality rate, so it's no wonder the cry of the city went up to heaven. I'm sure that it did. And yet keep in mind, the entire time all of this was happening, as far as the Israelites were concerned, 
all was lost because God was now being held helplessly captive by their enemies, no longer glorified as the one true God. Why? Because they were no longer able to glorify him. As if the God of all creation was now confined to a box that was in Philistine possession, a pagan people who would surely defame and degrade the glory of God. See, for the Israelites, it was as if the greatness of God was dependent upon them. And although it took them a while to learn this lesson, eventually they came to understand that in uncertain times, God is great even when you aren't. Because we don't make God great. Right? There's nothing that the Israelites were doing at the time that could make God great. And by the way, there was nothing the Philistines were doing at the time that could keep God from being great. Because God is God and He is great regardless of what we ever do or do not do. You understand, uh, your righteousness doesn't add to God's greatness and your sin doesn't take away from it. The Israelites didn't add to God's greatness and the Philistines didn't take away from it. God is great and he is worthy of honor and worship because of who he is, not because of who we are. And yet one of the most common arguments that people make against Christianity today is that the church is full of hypocrites, which is true. It is. In fact, you don't need to step into a church to know that. Just read the New Testament and you'll find out rather quickly that the church is and always has been full of hypocrites. And by the way, so is the rest of the world. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. There isn't one single person on this planet under their own steam who lives up perfectly to their own standard of goodness, let alone God's standard of goodness, right? Everyone has their own standards for what is good and right, Christians and non-Christians alike, and yet not one of us lives up to those standards perfectly, not one. And if, by the way, if someone tells you they do, uh, they're not being honest, uh, and yet this world is full of people who will tell you that they believe that they are in fact good all on their own. Hypocrites down to the last man. So what makes the temple of God, the people of God, excuse me, what makes the people of God then any different than the rest of the world? Well, here's a hint. It's not us. It's not us that makes us different. It's Jesus Christ that makes us different. He is the reason we're different because through His righteousness, through His perfection, through His innocent blood that was shed on a Roman cross for us, we are made righteous in Him. Even though we still don't live up to His perfect standard of righteousness, okay? We are different because God is great, not because we're great. And so look, if you're, if, you're, if you're looking for an example of perfection in Christianity, don't fix your eyes on Christians. Fix your eyes on Christ. To reject Christianity because of the flawed people who follow him is an indictment against man, not God. Okay, focus on the greatness of God because he is great even when we're, even when we're not, which is so important for us to remember, especially in times of uncertainty, because listen, whether 
uh, whether a vaccine uh, comes tomorrow or two years from now, whether our economy bounces back or crashes miserably, whether we stay healthy or get sick, look, whether everything opens back up tomorrow or stays closed forever, whether life goes our way or not, God is still great and no virus or anything else will ever change that which means no matter what is happening or no matter how uncertain life may be, you can wake up every morning full of faith for today because we serve a God whose greatness is absolute and absolutely unaffected by the uncertainty of this world. So which is it for you? Faith or fear? What is driving your decisions, your choices in these uncertain times? The Israelites were driven by fear, not faith, and the result was catastrophic. And listen, it's good for us to honestly reflect on this question in times like these. Is, is my fear of uncertainty greater than my faith in God? And if you're not sure the answer to that question, then just look at what is coming out of you. How are you treating other people? How is your attitude in general? Are you at peace or in constant turmoil? Is what's coming out of you speaking life to others or death? Because whatever is, I'm telling you, whatever is inside of you, that's what's coming out of you. And if your fear is greater than your faith, then fear will drive everything that you say and do. Yet when, when talking about our faith as followers of Christ, the apostle Paul said, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7, we, we all experience, okay? We all experience fear at times in our lives. That is an unavoidable part of the human condition. Just don't allow great fear to overshadow the greatness of God in your own heart and life. Pastor and author Craig Groeschel said, never let the presence of a storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. Let's keep reading. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the, the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and, and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put it in a box, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch." If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. 
The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So after seven months of death and destruction, the Philistines decide they've had enough and try to figure out a way to get rid of the ark, even though they're not all in agreement that the ark is definitely the problem. So the priests and the diviners, who really don't know what to do either, decide to create a great experiment to hopefully get uh, either get rid of the ark or at least determine whether or not the ark is to blame for their plight. And so they instruct the leaders of each city to have images of the tumors and the rats made out of gold. Really nice. Uh, to represent each Philistine ruler and each city-state that has been afflicted by the plague and then to send them along with the ark back to the Israelites, which was not only a symbolic offering, by the way, it was also a very costly offering and a way for the Philistines, in their own words, to give glory to the God of Israel, ultimately acknowledging his lordship over them, his greatness, right? And so the way they decide to determine if this truly is the God of the Hebrews who's responsible for their suffering is to take two milk cows who had never had a yoke on them, which is to say two untrained cows, unaccustomed to pulling a cart, or doing regular farm work. And just to be doubly sure, these were cows with young calves, which were taken away from their mothers back home to the Philistines, which meant these untrained cows would not only have to pull a farming cart down a foreign road into a foreign city where they've never been before without any guidance or assistance, but they would have to do so while resisting every maternal instinct within them to turn back toward the cries of their calves who needed them. The idea being that if the cows go straight to Israel, then the Israelites' God must be the Philistines' problem because of the sheer unlikelihood that two untrained cows with young calves would pull off such a feat without any assistance, never having done anything like that before. And yet, of course, if the cows turn back, to the calves or stop pulling altogether, then it must not be Israel's God causing all of their pain and suffering and they can keep the ark. Okay, this was, this was a giant experiment because they really didn't understand how to treat the ark of the covenant. And so the outcome of the experiment was completely dependent upon the plan of God to return the ark to its people. This was God at work, not the Philistines, not the Israelites. That's exactly what happens as the cows ignore every natural instinct they have and walk straight toward Israel, lowing for their calves the whole way to Beth Shemesh, a Levitical city in the Valley of Sorek where the ark could be cared for. According to Numbers 3.31 and Deuteronomy 10.8 and Joshua 21.16, and it speaks volumes 
not only to the Philistines, but eventually to the Israelites, and listen, hopefully to us as well, the fact that in uncertain times, God has a plan even when you don't. Okay, we, we think about life, we tend to think about our own individual lives and maybe even how they're connected to the lives of our family members and those friends in our immediate circle of influence or interaction, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure how common it is when we think about life to think about how our lives individually are connected to and affecting the lives of people whom we haven't even met yet, or maybe even those we never will meet, at least this side of heaven, other people right all over the earth, and yet our lives, without question, are affecting the lives of other people far from our immediate circles of influence. People all around the world who we may never meet or know anything about, because God's plan for each one of our individual lives is a part of a much bigger plan, which happens to be connected to the lives of the rest of his people all around the earth. Every single follower of Jesus Christ is a part of his body, his church, which is, of course, all over the world, which means the story that is your life is a part of a much larger story. So look, uh, you will never be able to fully understand God's plan for your life outside of understanding his plan for this world because the two are inseparable. They're inextricably linked for all of eternity. And so it is exceedingly important that we not only understand and accept that fact, but that we live our lives with a great sense of conviction that every part of our lives, our choices, our decisions, our approach to and handling of circumstances, our attitudes and treatment of other people, especially in uncertain times. It is exceedingly important that we understand that all of that has a ripple effect that reverberates throughout the rest of the body of Christ, the worldwide body of believers, both now and far into the future. Because that big story is made up of the sum of all of our individual stories so that our part, right, the, the part that each one of us plays in this grand plan is just as important as every other part and it is affecting every other part. You see, this was uh, one of the problems for the Israelites. They only thought about themselves and their plan for themselves and their plan for God, which of course turned out to be no plan at all. Fortunately for them and for us, God had a plan. And I say fortunately for us because what God was doing in and for his people all the way back then is still affecting his people today. And yet I can't tell you how many times in my own life I've fallen in love with my own plan. And then I tried to convince God that it was not only a really good plan, but it was the best plan for all involved. The problem is just as with the Israelites, as good as our plan may seem to us, it will never measure up to or get us where we need to be like God's plan will. And yet as utterly deficient, second rate, as our plans will always be compared to God's plan, I'm telling you, letting go of our own plans for this life in deference to his is one of the very hardest things you will ever do in your lifetime. The fact is, Listen, the single greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan. 
You hear me? The single greatest threat to God's plan being realized in your life is your plan. Why? Because our plan always focuses on us first. And in uncertain times, what is inside of us is always what comes out of us. And if you're working your plan for your life, I'm telling you, when the pressure is on, what will come out of you is what you think is best for you. Not what's best for others, which is exactly what we're seeing happening, by the way, all over our society today, aren't we? Now listen, that will eventually lead you. Living that way will eventually lead you every single time to a sense of hopelessness which is precisely what happened with the Israelites. They focused on their plan, what turned out to be no plan at all, but it was what they thought was best for them first. And as a result, they lost the ark and they lost their hope because self-focus never offers us hope for the future. Never. Only God can offer us that. So when your life is focused on God's plan, which again is always a plan for this world that you're a part of, you understand His plan if your life is bigger than just you, which means rather than asking, what is God's plan for my life? We like to ask that question. What is God's plan for my life? Instead, what we should be asking is, what is God's plan for this world? And then once we answer that question, then we can ask, how does my life fit into that plan? To God's plan for this world, because that's how we discover our purpose. God's plan for our lives. And when your focus is on God's plan instead of your own, it is there you will find hope in endless supply. Which means when the pressures of life come, and we all know they do, even with all of our flaws and all of our mistakes, what comes out of you is hope for today and hope for the future because that's God's plan for His people. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you what? A future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11, author Dave Harvey once wrote, our failures are never big enough to interrupt God's plans for us. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. The golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So the ark is returned to the Israelites at Beth Shemesh, and yet it brings with it not blessing, but terror to the local population, with most of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts describing the ark uh, as having struck of the people 70 men, I'm quoting, it says, struck of the people, 70 men, comma, 50,000 men, which is why uh, some of the English translations, maybe some that you're reading now, tell us that 50,000 men actually died in Beth Shemesh, and others yet say 70, uh, because it is unclear. However, 
Beth Shemesh was a small town. And so if tens of thousands of additional Israelites came to see the ark, which is possible, then the 50,000 number could be correct. Otherwise, it's more likely the number of dead was 70. Either way, this was a devastating blow to the people of Israel who are elated to have the ark back. And yet no sooner do they recover the ark that it starts killing people who look at it or who had touched it. Uh, as Josephus tells us, he says that those who had touched it not being priests were not worthy to touch the ark and therefore died. The point being, listen, the presence of the holy God with the ark was fraught with danger. It always was, right? This was nothing new. The Israelites knew well and good that they were forbidden apart from certain priests to handle or even gaze upon the ark, right? So what had changed? Well, as far as God was concerned, nothing had changed because God never changes. His presence was as holy and dreadfully powerful as ever. Just because the Israelites were happy to have the ark back didn't mean they could now treat the ark dishonorably any more than they could when they wrongly carried it into battle against the Philistines to begin with. And again, it was a terribly difficult lesson for them to learn, the fact that in uncertain times, God never changes even when you do. But eventually they got it, as we'll see in the next chapter. And listen, we need, we need to get this too. Because when times are uncertain and the pressure is mounting, we like to try and wield God like a weapon against those who disagree with us or those who seem to be working against us. And I'll just tell you, from firsthand experience, there are plenty of professing Christians who will use what they consider to be righteous anger like a weapon against other Christians. And it is shameful, first of all. You understand, listen, outside pressure cannot destroy the church. You understand that? In fact, you will rarely ever find a local church that has withered and died because of outside pressures. What you will very often find, however, are local churches that end up shutting their doors for good because of something that happened within the church itself when the people turned against one another. In fact, that actually happens all the time. You see, if the enemy can get a man or a woman on the inside to do his bidding, he can do far more damage to the church than he ever could by attacking it from without. And listen, please hear me. I want churches everywhere to begin to gather and meet in person more than anybody. I promise you. By the way, all of that is coming soon, and you'll hear about that very soon. But I'm just telling you, listen. There's a far greater risk of the church being damaged from people within it attacking each other than there will ever be from outside forces asking us not to meet in the same space for a few weeks or whatever it is. Okay, at the end of the day, when the pressure is turned up in these uncertain times, what is inside of us is what comes out. Don't let your anger, whether you believe it's righteous or not, don't let your anger ruin your testimony or your fellowship within the body. Jesus said the way that the world will know that we're his disciples. In other words, our testimony to this world will be validated by what? If you have love for one another. John 13, 35. The bottom line is we cannot love those outside of the church if we do not love those inside the church. You may think you can, but you cannot. There's no 
reality where a Christian can effectively love those in the world while simultaneously dividing his church. The Apostle John said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for who? The brothers. 1 John 3, 16, which is to say your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, Jesus gave his own perfect life for the church. That's who he was then. That's who he is today. And that is who he will always be. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8, he never changes. We do. By the way, we should. We're, we are supposed to change, to grow, to learn, to mature, to love more and more and more and more and more like Jesus, which is why he allows us to go through difficult things, uncertain times, pressures that shape us, change us so that we become more like him. So that, listen, when we get squeezed by the pressures of this world, what comes out of us is less of us and more of him. Less fear, more faith. Less hopelessness, more hope. Less anger, more love. Pastor Jason Wing said, God may be more interested in changing us through suffering than to remove us from it. Okay? Obviously, we're living in uncertain times, and it is most often in those times of great uncertainty that whatever is inside of us starts to come out. And the question today is, what is coming out of you right now? When people talk to you, when they hear what you have to say, when they see what you're doing, the influence you're having, the message you're sending, the way you're living, do they see faith? Do they see hope? Do they see love? Or do they see fear, hopelessness, and anger? Because listen, God isn't afraid for you. He doesn't think you're hopeless. And he isn't angry with you. And so instead of, instead of projecting all of our flaws onto him, why don't we instead just receive all of his gifts inside of us, faith, hope, and love, so that in uncertain times, when the pressure's on and the world is watching, what comes out of us is Jesus. Let's pray.